Greetings and uh, welcome to the Rare Book School Monday Night Lecture. This is the first of our um, 2011 lecture series. My name is Amanda Nelson and I'm the program director at Rare Book School. Um, I bring warm wishes from our offices in Charlottesville, Virginia, and also from our director, Michael Suarez. Uh, Rare Book School provides continuing education opportunities for students from all disciplines and levels in the history of written, printed, and born digital materials with leading scholars and professionals in the field. Founded in 1983, Rare Book School, or RBS, moved to its present home at the University of Virginia in 1992. Uh, some of you are attending our course, 15th Century Books in Print and Manuscript, which began today at the Walters Art Museum, uh, taught by Will Noel and Paul Needham. Um, others of you may be well acquainted with Rare Book School. Um, if you're a newcomer or a veteran to RBS, and if you have any questions about our courses or the school, please see me after in the reception that follows this lecture. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce to you our lecturer this evening, John Buchtel. Uh, John earned his doctorate in, in English from the University of Virginia, all right, <laughs> in 2004. Um, his articles on early modern patronage and book dedications have appeared in Book History and in Prince Henry Revived, Image and Exemplarity, excuse me, Exemplarity in Eater Early Modern England. Wow, <laughs> that's a mouthful, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, and he's also published in the PBSA and uh, Teaching Bibliography, Textual Criticism and Book History. Um, Dr. Buchtel has presented papers, lectured, curated exhibitions on modern history. I think we switched something, sorry. Um, we'll find it. Uh, pardon me. Um, he has uh, presented papers, lectured, curated ex exhibitions on early modern literature and education, uh, cura curatorship, book collecting, the history of books and libraries, and Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre. Am I going through your slides right now? <laughs> I'm giving away. There, there we go. Okay. Um, he is currently the director of special collections research of the special collections research center at Georgetown University. Uh, previous positions include the curator of rare books at Johns Hopkins University's Sheridan Libraries and curator of collections at RBS at the University of Virginia. As Michael Suarez mentioned recently. John's dedication to the field and exemplary works have taken him from the mailroom to the boardroom, so to speak. Uh, and we are so fortunate that he returns to Charlottesville each summer, I hope, <laughs> um, to co-teach the history of the book 200 to 2000, one of our gem courses. Um, Dr. Bookdell's lecture this evening is titled Books by Rail, the Baltimore and Ohio Employees Free Circulating Library and it sheds light on an early period of library history, not the 15th century, well, <laughs> but the 19th century, um, when one of the first public libraries was introduced in America, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, just down the street here in Baltimore. This lecture details the founding of the circulating library in 1885 by order of the B&O uh, President, B&O Railroad's President, Robert Garrett, and discusses the library's contents and methods of operation. Mm -hmm. It's quite fitting to be sitting here in Baltimore as Dr. Buchtel provides context for the library's place in the city's history, of, excuse me, in this rich history, um, book history of the city of Baltimore. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Buchtel. Good evening. Thank you, Amanda, and thanks to Rare Book School for hosting this lecture. Books by Rail, the Baltimore and Ohio Employees Free Circulating Library. In 1885, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad opened a network to deliver books to ordinary laboring Americans upon request, with the express intent of providing them with the means of self-improvement. While it was not the first railroad library, the Boston and Albany, for one, opened its library in 1869, the B&O Employees Free Circulating Library took advantage of the railroad's extensive reach to create an innovative system whereby books could be delivered free of charge uh, within a single day of the request. 
This was seven years before Melville Dewey began experimenting with traveling libraries in upstate New York. And it was different in kind from Dewey's pre-selected 100 books in a box. B&O employees filled out their request slips from any point along the line, sent them in to the library in Baltimore, and the next train would deliver their individually requested books as far as the Mississippi River. In less than three years, the library contained 10,000 volumes and had already circulated them a remarkable 30,000 times, predominantly to points totally deprived of other library facilities. As former curator of rare books at the Johns Hopkins University, for four years I had the privilege of caring for the extraordinary 30,000 volume rare book collection in the John Work Garrett Library at Evergreen House. The Italian mansion was the home of the wealthy heirs of the first John Work Garrett, president of the B&O Railroad for almost 30 years. Evergreen was purchased for John Work Garrett's son, T. Harrison Garrett, who reportedly bought his copy of the rare Shakespeare first folio from Pickering and Chatto in 1865 while a sophomore at Princeton. If that does not provide enough sense of the family's capacity, <laughs> witness the Tiffany Canopy, commissioned by T. Harrison's wife, Alice Whitridge Garrett, witness the Gilded Age opulence of their gold bathroom. <laughs> Before his premature death in 1888, T. Harrison had amassed one of America's most important collections of fine prints and illustrated books. T. Harrison and Alice Whitridge Garrett's eagerness to pass their enthusiasm for books and learning along to others is reflected in the design of their boy's bedroom. With its cast iron circular stair and its built-in library stacks. Their son, the second John Work Garrett, would later serve as ambassador to Italy, become, be, became a distinguished collector of ornithology and early Americana. It was he who commissioned Evergreen's magnificent library room from architect Lawrence Hall Fowler during the Roaring Twenties. John Work's brother Robert, among such other accomplishments as winning four medals in track at the 1896 Athens Olympics, formed one of America's most significant collections of Islamic and Persian manuscripts now in the Princeton University Library. His finely etched bookplate reflects his Orientalist inclinations. The Garretts were also, fortunately, far-sighted collectors who did not limit themselves to the luxurious and the beautiful. T. Harrison eagerly collected contemporary ephemera, especially materials relating to the B&O Railroad. His collection formed the basis for a bibliography of the B&O compiled by his librarian, J.W.M. Lee, privately printed at the Chiswick Press in England, probably at T. Harrison's behest and almost certainly at his charge. This concern with documenting the mundane preserves evidence that the Garretts did not keep their love of learning to themselves. Among their B&O collection are several extremely scarce items relating to the B&O <coughs> employees' free circulating library, including an 1888 catalog of books for circulation and reference. I've found only two other copies. These sources reveal that the Garretts bore the primary responsibility for, fu for funding the library. A published 1887 report on the library for B&O employees reveals that the primary motive force behind its establishment was not, however, the Garretts directly, but rather the report's author, Dr. Dr. William Theodore Barnard. Barnard explains, in the spring of 1885, prompted by knowledge acquired in managing the Relief Association of the sad lack of educational facilities along the main stem and branches of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, I personally undertook to establish a free circulating library, which received the official sanction and countenance of the Baltimore and Ohio management through President Robert Garrett's Executive Order No. 10 on March 2, 1885. This is not Robert Garrett the Olympian. <laughs> Barnard, an 1870 graduate of the Georgetown Medical College, 
worked in the War Department for several years before being hired in 1880 as assistant to DNO President John Work Garrett and later to John Work's eldest son and successor Robert. The mansion next door to where we sit this evening, incidentally, with design work by both Stanford White and John Russell Pope, was Robert Garrett's home. And it was Robert Garrett who brought Frederick Law Olmsted to Baltimore to lay out Mount Vernon Square, whose beauties you uh, enjoy during the day here. Before John Work Garrett's death in 1884, Barnard set up a relief association. Oh, there, there's a uh, uh, the Garrett Jacobs Mansion next door. Before John Work Garrett's death in 1884, Barnard set up a relief association to provide the railroad's workers with life and disability insurance, pensions, a savings bank, a building association, and other benefits, including a technical school to train future B&O employees. Uh, Barnard's inspiration for the library came from his efforts as secretary of the relief association to provide entertaining books and periodicals to disabled employees as a therapeutical measure. Barnard clearly conceived the library as an extension of the Relief Association's benefits. Elsewhere, he includes the library in a list of the benefits of greatest importance. In one sense, a library for B&O employees had already been in existence for a number of years. President John Work Garrett had donated 600 volumes of reading matter in 1869, placed under the care of a volunteer librarian in a fairly well-furnished reading room in one of the company's buildings at Mount Clare, where the B&O's Baltimore shops were located. And that's the uh, roundhouse at the Mount Clare shops. It's now the B&O Museum, worth a visit if you haven't been there. This model, the small static collection in a locally available reading room was the norm for corporation-sponsored libraries at the time. By 1885, the reading room had stagnated, its stock reduced to 420 well-worn volumes, the contents of which had become more or less familiar to all the older reading employees. <laughs> A sense of the inadequacy of the old reading room is conveyed by the preface to a pamphlet reprinting a series of lectures by Johns Hopkins University biology professors that had been delivered to B&O employees in February 1882. In his introductory note, Professor H. Newell Martin describes the way in which the idea for the lecture series arose from a conversation between John Work Garrett and himself regarding reading rooms such as the B&O's. At these rooms, the current newspapers and magazines were provided for the intellectual recreation of those citizens whose daily work is more with hand than head, and whose incomes are such as to make the purchase of more than a small number of books impracticable. In consequence of the generosity of Mr. Enoch Pratt, every Baltimorean will in future have the opportunity to read at home any standard work which he may desire to study, but such, such was not the case at the time of the conversation above referred to. Garrett and Martin discussed the problem that but a small percentage of those for whom the reading room was maintained made, made any use of it, and many never came near it. Reading rooms, therefore, doing obviously but a small part of the work, the problem still remained. How to make intellectual recreation after working hours accessible and attractive to those who were often too weary to read magazines or enjoy a game of chess or checkers. Their solution was a series of four evening lectures on such topics as how skulls and backbones are built and some curious kinds of animal locomotion <laughs> held on Fridays at 8 p.m. in one of the coldest months of the year. Garrett provided funds for assistance, lantern slides, uh, proto-PowerPoint, <laughs> and diagrams. All employees were invited, and the privilege of attending these lectures was also extended to the wives and daughters of employees of the company. They expected two to three hundred, but they had six hundred in attendance. And Professor Martin's preface is highly complimentary to the attentiveness of his audience. Garrett ordered the lectures to be printed, 
to be distributed gratis to B&O employees so that workers far afield from Baltimore could also benefit from the event. Despite promises to hold more such lectures, this was the only pamphlet produced. Whatever the success of the lecture series, it clearly shows that John Work Garrett was groping toward a way to make cultural opportunities available to all his employees. He would undoubtedly have favored the library that W.T. Barnard eventually set up. Perhaps Garrett and Barnard discussed the idea before Garrett's death in 1884. As Professor Martin's mention of Enoch Pratt suggests, the notion of free circulating libraries was gaining significant traction in Baltimore at this time, and Robert Garrett's ready acceptance of Barnard's idea may in part be owing to this trend. The Peabody Institute, free though not circulating, had been in operation since shortly after George Peabody's 1857 donation. Its magnificent cast iron building had been open only since 1878. In 1882, Enoch Pratt offered the city a gift of more than $1 million to establish the Enoch Pratt Free Library, the first public circulating library in the United States to feature branches. The Pratt opened its central library and four branches for all, rich and poor, without distinction of race or color, in 1886. The new B&O Employees Free Circulating Library, which opened on December 1, 1885, operated at a very different level than the old reading room. The library was free at a time when it was still up in the air as to whether and to what extent the subscription model for libraries would be superseded. It was open to all employees, as well as their spouses and children. It was run by a paid <coughs> librarian. And it offered 24-hour turnaround from anywhere on the B&O's lines at a time when the next best thing, the library of the Boston and Albany Railroad, sent books out only once a week. One might regard the B&O Employees Library as a precursor of today's interlibrary loan network, or an early experiment in books on demand, or even as a, an early chapter in the history of distance learning. One might almost be tempted to compare it to Netflix. <laughs> Although, to make the analogy work, one must imagine a free Netflix with content provided primarily by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the History and Discovery Channels. In one regard, the B&O library really was like Netflix. The book request slips had space to list 20 titles of interest. And while the requester would only get one book or two volumes of one work for two weeks at a time, or three weeks for educational works, with a margin of three days for transit, the librarian would send the request, the requester, the first available book on the list. As a reporter for the Baltimore Sun re remarked, if 19 of them are out, he may get the 20th, without delay or sending again. The mission of the B&O li uh, Employees Library was to exert an elevating and educating influence on the employees of the service, and particularly their children. In keeping with that mission, and I quote from the uh, catalog, it will supply only current periodicals, standard works on the sciences, general literature, poetry, historical text, and other books of practical utility to engineers, mechanics, firemen, apprentices, and other railroad employees, and such, are, uh, uh, such as are especially adapted to educating and elevating the character of the young. Whatever is purely sensational or immoral in tendency will be rigidly excluded from its shelves, and its management will always endeavor to discourage the use of literature from which unhealthy and unreal ideas of life might be drawn. <laughs> The library was designed to facilitate the control up by your own bootstraps educational process that Barnard characterizes as the home instruction and self-culture of the mass of the Baltimore and Ohio company's employees. In his 1887 report on the library, Barnard clarifies further, insisting that the library will guard workers against the cheap, trashy, sensationalistic, and unreal literature that is flooding and cursing the country. 
That statement, like the report in which it appears, was presumably calculated to elicit further donations from the library's benefactors. Along similar lines, librarian Samuel Rank reports in an 1897 Library Journal article that, along with the increase in the number of books used by B&O employees, there has been a decrease, a decrease, in the percentage of fiction in circulation, from 64 to 53%. Rank notes further that, while the librarian would ordinarily send the first available book listed on a requisition card, he uses his discretion in cases of fiction to select for the reader. Unfortunately, no evidence survives for the B&O librarian's actual selection criteria, but this anxiety about fiction was widely shared by librarians of their day. As historian D. Garrison notes, for the traditionalist, the person who questioned sexual standards through the reading of salacious fiction was also likely to entertain heretical views regarding the efficacy of prayer, the concept of private property, and the benevolence of political parties. <laughs> One might add the authority of railroad management. This subtext suggests an ever-present tension between a faith in the value of putting reading matter into the hands of workmen and their families and an anxiety over the nature of that reading matter. Rank, who was librarian at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, surely got his tidbits straight from his colleague at the B&O, librarian A.M. Irving, who no doubt reported them with a certain amount of pride. Rank characterizes Irving as enthusiastic, describing the frenzy early in the day as Irving and his assistants are busy getting books ready to catch trains, and when the trains for the day have been caught, he will be able to talk to you, and not before. It must have been with pride, too, that Irving told Rank that once a year he goes over the lines, visiting all the agents in the interests of the library. This is done during the summer, when for about four weeks the library is closed. The library had no fewer than 674 volunteer-staffed agencies at different points along the B&O's lines, each serving as a delivery station for the employees of the local community or department. A further glimpse into A.M. Irving's personality can be found in an 1888 letter to W.T. Barnard. Irving writes of the unprecedented success of the department, its economical administration, its thousands of readers, its vast powers for good, and its plant of 10,000 volumes of the best literature of the day. With the appreciation shown by its patrons as potent witness to your sound judgment in its establishment, on my recent trip over our lines, my reception was an ovation. Barnard and Irving shared a hearty op optimism about the power of good books to exert a positive influence on railroad workers. By 1897, Rank reports, the library had grown to 14,000 volumes, although there have been few additions since the B&O company has been in financial straits. The B&O went into receivership between 1896 and 1899. Rank also comments on, on an unusual preservation practice among the economies imposed by these financial constraints. The librarian uses for binding and repair the leather from worn car seats. Oh, there, there's A.M. Irving, sorry. From worn car seats, which he gets from the passenger car, car repair shops, located in the roundhouse near the library. The leather is practically useless when it is removed from the seats, but the pieces he is able to get makes a binding that is both neat and durable. To my knowledge, such bindings have gone unremarked in the bookbinding literature. My audience are urged to let me know if ever they chance upon an example of a recycled passenger seat leather bookbinding. <laughs> the four ex-B&O library books that I know of are all now at the Garrett Library, and all, alas, in their original publisher's cloth. My favorite remains the first one I discovered an 1883 translation of the Idols of Theocritus, Bion, and Moschus. Acquired from an online bookseller in 2006, 
for $10. A good example of the sort of improving literature one's betters must have chosen for one's library, this book showed no evidence of ever having been read. <laughs> As with each of the other three books, an extensive printed extract from rules, and I apologize for the quality of that slide, an extensive printed extract from rules of the BNO library is pasted to the front paste down. And the book bears shelf mark 4820 on a spine label and in several other places in blue pencil. The shelf mark can be confirmed in the 1888 catalog. The other three XBO library books do show the expected signs of wear. An 1875 edition of George Lewis's Life of Goethe and Lamartine's biography of Mary Stuart serve as examples of the works of biography and history toward which many of the library's readers reportedly gravitated. The final book is The Clergyman's Orphan, a moralistic narrative for children, illustrative of the library's emphasis on providing books for employees' children and reflecting the tendency of those, books to, of those religious books to be vaguely Protestant and more practical than theological. These books presumably left the library when it closed in 1931, and its contents were disposed of through gifts and sales upon the retirement of its third and final librarian, Elizabeth P. Irving. She had succeeded her husband, A. M. Irving, whom she had often assisted during his tenure in 1907. Something of Elizabeth Irving's approach to running the library and also of the personal character such a small institution would naturally have taken on, may be gleaned from her obituary. As if taking over the library in 1907, while rearing three small children, were not enough, she later designed and built three houses in succession with the help of an elderly African-American handyman. She was a woman of strong convictions, writes the obituary writer in the B&O Employees magazine, if she liked you, she would move the earth to do you a favor. If she didn't like you, it was a good idea to keep out of her way. <laughs> she was a stickler for woman suffrage, and she enjoyed her work thoroughly. It is intriguing to contemplate the degree to which the involvement of a woman like Elizabeth Irving had on such a library from its earliest days to shape its character and emphases. A.M. Irving's 1888 catalog presents its contents first by subject and then by author main entry. The library was divided into several major categories, history, descriptive works and travels, and it would be interesting to explore the degree to which the works selected fit into imperialistic agendas, biography, foreign classics for English readers, poetry and drama, practical arts with plenty of books on engineering, mechanics, and railways, natural science, scientific and educational, a delightfully miscellaneous catch-all category, religious works, a surprisingly small category, English prose fiction, historical novels, juvenile works, magazines and periodicals, and periodicals on file. Several of these were further subdivided. The catalog contains a total of 7,972 entries, numbered seriatim, those numbers serving also as shelf marks. Despite the librarian's stated concerns about fiction, fiction was the largest single category. With historical novels included, there were 2,075 entries. Just about every canonical work one might expect can be found there, including even Huckleberry Finn, which had been published in the year of the library's founding. Maybe a first edition. The extensive juvenile section, 659 entries, contains a great deal of fiction too, and while there is a higher proportion of boys' series like Alger, Henty, and Castleman, they are reasonably well-balanced with girls' books by the likes of Alcott and Susan Coolidge. No circulation records appear to have survived, so it is impossible to say what books actually went out let alone which actually got read. But the catalog provides abundant data on what B&O employees had easy access to. They could readily put their hands on all the Cooper and Dickens and Trollope and Stowe and Oliver Optic you could shake a stick at. 
They could also easily get not only Augustine's Confessions and Pilgrim's Progress, but also Voltaire and Rousseau, at least as mediated by Mrs. Oliphant. Not to mention Darwin's Origin of Species, The Descent of Man, and several works by Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley. In terms of fiction, from which readers might have been steered away by the librarian, much of the most objectionable never made it to the shelves in the first place. D. Garrison lists 16 authors who were judged questionable by an 1881 American Library Association Cooperation Committee questionnaire. Of the titles Garrison specifically lists, the majority, 15 of 17, simply were not represented in the B&O Employees Library. For the exceptions, there were multiple copies, two each of Augusta Jane Evans Wilson's St. Elmo and Ouida's Under Two Flags. But the omissions included such bestsellers as E.D.E.N. Southworth's The Hidden Hand and Ishmael, and uh, the B&O Library carried five titles by Mrs. Henry Wood, but not her popular and salacious East Lynn. A more thorough analysis would be required to say so conclusively, but while the library did not entirely avoid works that challenged convention, the library's contents trended toward uh, the conservative. Topics like evolution were not excluded, but scientific works leaned toward the practical rather than the theoretical or controversial. Religious works tended toward an ecumenical and moralistic popular piety. piety. Titles such as Jesus Paid It All or Animals of the Bible appear far more frequently than in-depth theology or doctrinal disputes. The library's contents appear, in general, to reflect the prevailing mores and interests of a mainstream educated elite concerned with guiding the reading of their workers along sensible, reasonable lines. I would like to conclude by exploring the motives behind the B&O Employees Library. Should we interpret the establishment of the library, as well as the Relief Association and Technical School, as genuine philanthropy? As a case of paternalistic noblesse oblige? As symptomatic of a robber baron complex with a guilty conscience? Even more cynically, as a calculated management effort to contain always potentially rebellious labor? Or, conversely, as an enlightened, proto-progressive approach to labor and management relations? The evidence suggests that it is a complex story, that motives probably were mixed, that each of these explanatory narratives may play something of a role. First, let us consider the question in light of the Garrett family's other wide-ranging philanthropic efforts. The Garretts supported a number of other charities, from hospitals to churches to educational institutions. The first John Work Garrett, who was a trustee of the Peabody Institute, joined forces with his friend, the extraordinary philanthropist George Peabody, to persuade the wealthy Quaker investor Johns Hopkins to found the university and hospital that bear his name the nation's first modern research university. At a smaller but more exotic level, in 1883, John Work Garrett gave four camels he had received from the King of Italy to the recently opened zoo at Baltimore's Druid Hill Park. The far-reaching benefactions of Garrett's daughter, Mary Elizabeth Garrett, were instrumental in the founding of the medical school at Johns Hopkins, winning a concession that women be admitted and in the support of Bryn Mawr College. In the realm of library philanthropy, in 1887, siblings Robert T. Harrison and Mary Garrett pledged $10,000 apiece as part of a drive to save Baltimore's foundering mercantile library. T. Harrison reportedly gave largely to charitable enterprises, according to his obituary, but normally shrank from publicity and made secrecy a condition of his gifts. So other library-related gifts may be difficult to document. Nonetheless, there are still books in the Peabody Library um, which bear T. Harrison's book plate, as, uh, as uh, there are books that were donated by 
uh, his father. N.T. Harrison supported the Peabody Institute, as well as his eagerness to share his collections with the public may also be inferred from his three exhibitions there of portions of his world-class print collection, uh, collection of fine prints. The Garrett copy of the catalog of the library of the Peabody Institute is a subscriber's set in a special subscriber's binding. The Garrett copy of the 1888 catalog of the Baltimore and Baltimore and Ohio Employees Free Circulating Library was inscribed by W.T. Barnard to Mrs. T. Harrison Garrett, that is, to Alice Whitridge Garrett. The inscription is undated, yet the catalog's title page identifies its date of issuance as June 1888, the same month in which T. Harrison tragically drowned at the age of 38 when his yacht, Gleam, was sunk in a late-night collision with a steamer. Tipped into the Garrett copy of the catalog are three letters concerning the transfer of management of the library from Barnard to A.M. Irving. They are dated July 13th and 16th, 1888, so Barnard must have given the catalog to Alice Garrett in late July, about one month after the recovery of T. Harrison's body. In his preface to the catalog, Barnard specifically names Mrs. T. Harrison Garrett as the donor of the 1,000 volumes that started off the newly formed library, whereas in his 1887 report, Barnard had attributed the very carefully and intelligently selected gift more vaguely to the family of T. Harrison Garrett. It seems that Barnard intended the catalog as a sort of offering of condolence to the recently widowed Alice, and perhaps also as a memorial to the late T. Harrison. I don't know him well enough to call him Harry. <laughs> when the library opened, another 3,000 volumes purchased with donated funds had been added to Alice Garrett's donation and the books remaining from John Work Garrett's original gift. Barnard's 1887 report broke the original 1885 donations down by source. Of more than $5,500 raised to that point, 4,000 came from Robert Garrett, 250 from T. Harrison, and 100 from Mary Elizabeth. These were the largest con contributions. By 1888, Barnard notes that of the almost $12,000 raised for the library, 10,350, or nearly 87%, came from members of the Garrett family. In his letter to Barnard, tipped into Alice Wichard Garrett's copy of the 1888 catalog, A.M. Irving writes effusively, Mr. Robert Garrett, Miss Mary E. Garrett, and the late Mr. T. Harrison Garrett and family, in so ably sustaining your efforts by their princely donations, thus enabling you to place the library upon a solid basis, have done a noble work, and could they hear the expressions of gratitude from all classes of employees as to the pleasure and profit derived from this arm of the service, they would know how fully their work is appreciated. These donations were part of an extensive, almost programmatic, approach to giving. The B&O Library was established as part of a culture of generosity and a belief, influenced by George Peabody, that philanthropy could make a lasting social impact. But there is more to the story when one looks at the other writings of W.T. Barnard. Barnard mentions on more than one occasion that he saw the library as ancillary to the goals of the B&O's newly established technical school. In 1887, he published an, an astonishingly exhaustive treatise on the value of establishing technical schools, with abundant evidence drawn from the latest European models and with appeals to the recently established Johns Hopkins University to collaborate in the creation of a technical university in Baltimore. That project never happened. The B&O's night school was located in proximity to the employee's library so that the apprentices could use it. This explains the large number of copies of certain kinds of books, 32 copies of Forney's Catechism of the Locomotive, 50 copies of Reed and Kellogg's Higher Lessons in English. But the technical school was itself just one part of an overarching attempt to address larger problems. Dr. Barnard's hiring to set up the B&O's Relief Association came less than three years after the Great Strike of 1877. 
that violent strike had started on the B&O and had an enormous impact on the railroad and on its president, John Work Garrett. Barnard is at his most frank in an article on the relations between management and labor published in the Popular Science Monthly in 1885. He specifically mentions the strike of 1877, and the deterrence of strikes is one of his primary stated reasons for advocating that other railroads imitate the B&O's Relief Association and Library. With reference to the library, he writes that when employees are thrown out of their accustomed occupations by sickness or accident, without resources for entertainment, the minds of many men brood over their misfortunes to an extent that seriously retards recovery. To such, anything that diverts the mind from care or trouble is unquestionably of therapeutical value. While the development of an educated workforce was the ultimate goal, a more immediate reason for establishing an employee's library was to forestall negative thoughts among idle workers. Essentially, Barnard seems to have been advocating for the use of educational benefits to create an educated layer of middle management as a buffer against potential strikes, while at the same time providing benign diversions for the workers themselves. It seems, then, that John Work Garrett's 1880 hiring of W.T. Barnard was part of a program to reconfigure labor attitudes and to bolster the reputation of the railroad following the Great Strike. In the same year, Garrett also hired a publicist. I believe it was the first publicist for, for, for a railroad. Joseph G. Pangborn, <laughs> a newspaperman and showman who has been called the P.T. Barnum of railroading. Pangborn created a major promotional campaign, producing such celebratory publications as the elaborate picturesque B&O, 1882, issued in both regular and deluxe editions, and featuring cutting-edge asymmetrical or aesthetic, uh, as they called it then, graphic design, and the even more over-the-top electric B&O, 1885, a freely distributed piece touting the company's telegraph service. Electric B&O is now quite scarce. Georgetown's copy is one of only five reported to the WorldCat database. Laid into that copy is a promotional slip printed on bright yellow paper. Electric B&O is the appropriate title of another of the artistic gems of the art preservative, in the issuance of which the Baltimore and Ohio Company has for some years led all corporations. For that matter, none of the large publishing houses of the country have a reputation for producing greater novelties in book production than the company in question. There really appearing to be no end to the unique innovations Pangborn originates. In his different books, he has departed entirely from the routine, and in every instance created new effects by new shapes in page construction and combination of color always most effective. In Electric B&O, the type matter is introduced in circles and graceful portions of circles, the plates so engraved as to carry the color work to the page edge. The effect sought is that of watercolor, and the American Banknote Company, in producing the book entire, is to be congratulated upon the first genuine success upon a printing press, all such effects having hitherto been achieved only by lithography. The expense must have been large, as the book is upon the finest quality and heavyweight paper, is in several colors, with a cover that in conception was an inspiration of the highest order. It is for gratuitous distribution, but only among those who will appreciate its beauties. Pangborn's emphasis on innovation and uniqueness is striking, as is his rhetorical insistence on superlatives. From today's perspective, these characteristics seem merely to emanate from the larger-than-life personality of a blowhard showman, just as the pamphlet's ornate, mythologizing visuals seem desperately busy. But the design aesthetic of Electric B&O, like the overblown style of the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress, is rather an effort to cram all that is new, all that is good, all that is modern into one package. What is reflected in its rhetoric 
is a valorization in the language, in the visual, visual vocabulary of the time, of what we might today refer to as a culture of corporate excellence, and indeed of corporate preeminence. If the Pangborn campaign was merely a matter of spin doctoring, it was a remarkably thorough and long-lasting effort. Even dismissing Pangborn's hyperbole, his publications really were innovative, extensive and remarkable, even if not to our taste. Like W.T. Uh, Barnard, Pangborn's tenure lasted well beyond John Work Garrett's presidency. Barnard's efforts were similarly extensive and innovative. And the Barnard Reform Campaign, too, was remarkably thorough and long-lasting to have been motivated merely as an effort at damage control. Samuel Rank sounds like an understudy to J.G. Pangborn when he writes of the B&O Employees Library that, to the section hand and his family living in rock-bound isolation, to the operator in the signal tower waiting for the click of his, of his instrument to call him to duty, to railroad workingmen everywhere along the company's lines, the books from Baltimore are bringing sunshine. This is, of course, a bit effusive in its purple overstatement. Still, bearing in mind our own enthusiastic support of our favorite libraries, it is an interesting exercise to try to put ourselves in the shoes of people who were a part of a newly mass literate culture, whose love for books was newly awakened, and for whom access to a free library was a new experience. By the end, the B&O Employees Library must have been rather hopelessly outmoded by developments in public libraries and public education. At some point, perhaps in the 1890s, the library moved from Mount Clare to the less centrally located Mount Royal Station, and its local usage suffered. After the rapid expansion of its first three years, its collections showed surprisingly little growth. A 1915 article comments that the circulation of the library of later years has been more or less restricted owing to the establishment in Baltimore of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, the Carnegie and other general circulating libraries at various points over the Baltimore and Ohio lines and situated more conveniently to users. Nonetheless, W.T. Barnard's innovations, as supported by the Garrett's benefactions, were well-received and demonstrably successful in their time. The library Barnard and Garrett founded at the same moment in history as Andrew Carnegie was bringing his first public libraries to Main Street America lasted nearly 50 years. The B&O library took advantage of new technologies to circulate thousands of books hundreds of thousands of times to thousands of readers in hundreds of remote areas. Surely, the B&O Employees Free Circulating Library contributed in its impact on the reading habits and expectations of ordinary workmen and their families to the success of subsequent public library developments. Thank you. See if I can read my footnotes to answer them. <laughs> Christine. Obvious question. Were there any medical books? There's no separate section, although in the uh, in the uh, miscellaneous section, I believe there are some. I would have to go back and look. Uh, each uh, curator carries his or her particular interests, and I'm, I'm a literary guy, and Christine's the curator of the history of medicine uh, at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. Well, I was just so. interested in what sort of things they would think appropriate to offer, right. whether it right. be domestic medical books or something more particular. I suspect, we'll, we'll have to look, but I suspect they're going to be current books, just based on the other kinds of books in the library. They'll, they'll be current. Uh, the state-of-the-art, uh, recently published kind of books, and they will be practical in nature. Probably, uh, probably a couple that one might be able to teach oneself to be a doctor if <laughs> if one were so inclined to. I saw another hand. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. Um, I'm not sure if this is 
Maybe. You probably already answered this, but I've lost track in all the details. <laughs> uh, how did the employee know what books were available? Did everybody get a copy of this bibliography? Every single employee had a copy of it? That's one of the details I left out, so thank you. Um, Copies, oh, but of the, I didn't miss it. <laughs> copies of the catalog were available in each of the 674 agencies. So your local station or depot along the line had a volunteer agent who had a copy of the catalog, and you could go there and get a requisition card and send it in from there. And that's also where you would pick up the books. Um, you could also, if you wanted your own copy of the catalog, you could order one for 25 cents. So do you know how many were printed? No idea. I found three surviving copies of the 1888 catalog. I found references to an earlier catalog, and I have found no surviving copies. If anyone knows of one, let me know. Earl. Yes, um, were there fines? There were fines. Did you say that already? I'm I, sorry. That's another detail that's in the footnotes. <laughs> Um, so if you, you have two weeks to, to get the book back to Baltimore, um, you have three days grace period for transit, even though it probably only took a day to get the book to and from. And if you missed that, you, you could actually renew the book. You could renew once uh, for another two-week period. Um, I, I believe that uh, if it were a book that you checked out for a course of study, if you were one of the apprentices, you have three months, actually. And if you missed getting the book back in time, the fines were one penny a day. They docked your salary? They didn't say how they uh, got the penny, but I would imagine um, it being a corporate-sponsored library. Well, we have more time and um, some refreshments to enjoy in the back. And I wanted to thank John again for a lovely lecture and tell him that we have a, um, a, a small gift from RBS, which is a, a framed copy of the poster. But we're sending that by rail, because there's no other way to get that to you. <laughs> so that will be um, arriving shortly. <laughs> um, and thanks again. And please enjoy some refreshments in the back. Thank you all thank for coming.